Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Wow. I mean, that is one intense song. <laughs> Had you heard that before? Or read that before in our Bibles? I mean, did you, did you know that language like that even existed in our Bibles? I mean, what kind of pain? What kind of anger? What, what would prompt someone to think those kinds of thoughts? To wish those kinds of things on someone else? On babies? And then write them down? <laughs> and what would prompt God to include this in his word. Why is this psalm even in Israel's prayer book? Why is it in our Bibles? A prayer of anger. That's our lesson for today as we focus on the psalms as tools for teaching us how to pray through all that life uh, throws at us. Well, prayer is fundamentally not words spoken. Prayer is fundamentally a relationship, a friendship with God. If you want to, if you want to understand prayer, begin with what you know about friendship. That's the advice C.S. Lewis gave us, uh, we heard last week. And last week it wasn't hard <laughs> to make the connection between a healthy relationship with God and our need to express our humility before him through regular and heartfelt prayers of confession. Now, we get that. You know, God is not our equal. I mean, not even close to it. And it's not just his greatness that puts him above us. It is his holiness. God is holy, 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 and we're not. But that does not prevent us from being in a relationship with God. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, with a capital S, and our sins. Our job is to confess them. And scripture tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, we get the connection 
between confession in our prayers and friendship with God. Now we have to deal... (laughs) Now we have to deal with the next great crippler of a relationship, a friendship with God. Our anger. Anger, improperly handled, destroys relationships, especially our friendships. So how, how many of our human friendships have gone south? I mean, blown up in some spectacular explosion or just disintegrated over time because we did not have a functional way to deal with anger in our relationship. From, from full knockdown, drag out fights to, to the deadly simmering of passive anger. How many of our relationships have suffered because we don't have or we don't use healthy ways of dealing with anger in our relationships. So, a prayer of anger. That's what Psalm 137 is. It's a prayer. It is an angry prayer. An angry, desperate prayer written by angry people and then adopted and prayed by an angry nation. And given what they experienced, if you had been them, you would be angry too. But you are you. You have your own reasons to be angry. From all of your low-grade irritations with situations, family members, bosses, workmates, friends, spouses, pastors, to that raw anger, that white-hot rage that comes into every human life from time to time. And maybe right now, in the midst of our current trouble here at Evergreen. Now, again, don't get me wrong. So I'm not focusing our attention on prayers of anger this morning because I suspect that some of you, many of you, are angry over what has taken place here in the last few months. I am hopeful that what these psalms offer us will be helpful to you if anger connected to this church is acute for you right now. But walking with God in all seasons of life requires that we know what to do when anger comes upon us, as it will, from time to time or maybe all too often. You, me, all of us, we have our own reasons to be angry. Sometimes we're angry at people. Sometimes we're angry at God. Sometimes it's both. But in any case, our anger, improperly handled, always affects our relationship with God. All anger, improperly handled, affects our relationship with God. And so it is vital that we have tools for dealing with the way anger damages our relationships with others and with God. Prayers of anger are the tools we need. So the book of Psalm provides us with all the tools we need for all the kinds of anger that we experience. So 
Let's, let's just take a moment to remember how the Psalms work, these prayers work, as our tutors in prayer. The Psalms are prayers that teach us how to pray. So last week I quoted Eugene Peterson who said, the Psalms are the best tools available for teaching us to pray. 150 carefully crafted prayers that attend to all of the parts of our lives that are at various times and in different ways rebelling and trusting, hurting and praising. So that's what the Psalms do. They take the raw material of our lives, our real lives, and they direct it all toward God. Sometimes in praise, sometimes in confusion, sometimes in frustration, sometimes in anger. The Psalms are honest prayers for real life. Now sometimes Psalms are prayers of praise and thanksgiving, such beautiful language for our prayer. In the, in the, the Psalter, maybe you have favorites. But sometimes they sound kind of whiny, you know, like, like Psalm 6. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Sometimes they sound paranoid, like Psalm 60. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. Sometimes the Psalms are flat out vindictive. <laughs> Listen to Psalm 12. <laughs> May the Lord cut off every flattering lip, every boastful tongue. In the Psalms, God intentionally inspired liberal use of raw metaphors like cutting off lips <laughs> to remind us of our need to be brutally honest with him in our prayers. We're not to spiritualize our circumstances, to sanitize them, or to distance ourselves from our anger with religious or pious jargon in our prayers. The Psalms keep our prayers rooted in reality. Peterson also said, disassociated from the rawness of life, Prayer drifts into silly sentimentality or snobbish mysticism or pious elitism. So we don't want that, right? We don't want that, not if we want to know God, not if we want to, to experience his presence in our lives. So what is said in the Psalms might be shocking or immature sounding, or just plain rude. Every psalmist seems driven to lay bare before God exactly how they ex the, their experience of life feels to them at that moment. Give it to God, and then let him make sense out of it. Okay, so let's go back to Psalm 137 that Linnea read for us. Uh, it, it is a prayer of raw anger, is it not? Um, and it's expressed in the most graphic of terms. Psalm 137. What is this psalm all about? 
So, verse 1 gives us the historical context that we need. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. So about, about 900 years after God led his people into their promised land, and then about 400 years after he created the nation of Israel with Saul first as its king and then David, after all that, Israel was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And most of those very few who survived were taken back to Babylon as captives. Everything they knew, everything they loved was taken from them. Their precious temple destroyed. In fact, the entire capital city of Jerusalem was laid bare, its great walls torn down. So we know, we know, this period of captivity lasted 70 years. God's people eventually came back from their captivity. But, but during those long 70 years, the exiles themselves, they had no hope this would ever end. They hadn't just lost their homes, their freedom. They had lost, as far as they knew, their place in God's, as God's people. They had lost their identity, their religion, their purpose, their future. By the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept. Now, by all historical accounts, the rivers of Babylon, um, the system of canals that carried water through the city were, were beautiful, lush, peaceful garden spots. And even so, God's people wept as they sat there, remembering their homes, you know, in dry, dusty Palestine. The, the land that God had given them, the, their place as God's own people, they sat, and as they remembered, they wept. So verse 2, there on the poplars, we hung our harps. So there on the poplar trees that lined the river, they hung their harps, their instruments they had used to worship God in the temple, in their homes, to sing of their history with God, to experience their cultural joy. And nothing symbolized their hopelessness, their anger at this catastrophic change of circumstances more than to drape their harps over the tree limbs. Our life is over. Verse 3. But they aren't left alone to wallow in their misery. They are tormented by their captors. Hey, sing us a song. You were such a joyful people, always singing and dancing. Sing us a song now. Verses 4, 5, and 6. How can you ask us to sing? Our songs of God and of our homes, you strip them both from us. My hand for playing, my tongue for singing, they don't work anymore. How can I sing? Now, there's a, there's a change in style and in tone as we move into verses 7, 8, and 9. 
linguistic strugglers, or, uh, scholars have struggled to, in what to make of this. Many believe that it is actually a song injected into this psalm. A song, but with a twist. <laughs> you want to hear a song from us? Okay, here's a song. <laughs> now, ha- have you ever enjoyed a, a song in a foreign language without having a clue about what the words meant? (laughs) You like the tune, the voices, the instruments, and and what the words mean? Well, who cares? I mean, they could be singing anything, and you wouldn't know. They could even be singing curses upon you. And that is likely what is going on in Psalm 137. Israel is calling down God's wrath upon those who wronged them by singing to those people who taunted them, singing joyful-sounding music and calling wrath upon their oppressors in words their oppressors couldn't even understand. Verse 7, to the Edomites. The Edomites had been their allies against the Babylonians, but they changed sides and joined in the destruction of Jerusalem. They, they taunted, saying, tear it down, tear it down, as the walls were coming down. Betrayal! Take this, you Edomites! The Babylonians, unspeakably brutal in their warfare. Happy is the one, they sang. Blessed is the one who pays you back with the same treatment you gave us. And then finally... Verse 9. I mean, this sentiment shocks us every time we see it, doesn't it? Every time we hear it read aloud. Happy is the one. Blessed is the one who takes your infants the same way you took our infants and dashes them against the rocks. The end raw, uncensored anger. A prayer? A model for our prayer? All of the above. Okay, so let me make two pastoral observations, or maybe several, about how anger and prayer, uh, and how we can and must combine anger in our prayers. So first, first this observation. Anger itself is not the problem in our relationships with others and with God. I mean, anger is part of life. I mean, we, we know that. Anger is an inevitable result of two realities. First, we're humans. You know, we have emotions. We experience things personally. And then we live in a fallen world where self-interest, where evil and circumstances work against us in ways that do real damage to us and to those we love. So the combination of these two realities, well, it often produces anger in us. All of us. Any of us. Uh, Sometimes we're angry because of what happened to us. Sometimes we're angry because of what happened to someone else. So anger cannot be avoided. 
Therefore, it should not be avoided. To deny anger its place in life is to deny both being human and to deny the fallenness of our world. Now, anger does not come in one size or shape. Uh, there's sudden anger and slow anger. There's irritation and there's rage. All the variations in between. There's vindictive anger, vengeful anger, prideful anger, righteous anger. There's the personal anger we feel toward someone who's taken advantage of us and cheated us or abused us or someone we love. Uh, there's a community anger that we feel when our nation has been attacked or, or our people threatened. And there is an anger we can only direct toward God who did not protect us, who did not protect our family from tragedy, from insult, from abuse. So some families are more comfortable with anger than others. Have you noticed this? You know, I call them blow-up makeup families. You know, they process anger differently than families who take their anger underground, where it constantly simmers but rarely boils. Now, some cultures are also more comfortable with anger than, with, than others are. You know, Italians, apparently, are blow-up makeup people as a group. <laughs> well, Scandinavians are generally unable to express anger, but very good at being passively aggressive toward it. <laughs> so I wonder which group formed the DNA of the covenant. Christian culture, as a rule, doesn't know what to do with anger. It feels like sinning to be upfront with our anger. But it is sinning to nurse anger below the surface, like we often do. I mean, the Bible makes this clear. Anger is not the sin. Nursing anger is the sin. Ephesians 4, verse 26, or chapter, yeah, Chapter 4, verse 26. Did you know that it's quoting Psalm 4 when it says, In your anger do not sin. And then it says, Don't let the sun go down on your anger while you're still angry. <laughs> In other words, don't nurse it along day after day. No, deal with it. So, praying the Psalms is a way to be angry without sinning. That's my first observation. The second one is this. The Psalms teach us what to do with our anger. First, we take it to God. <laughs> Psalm 3 and dozens of other Psalms are models for this. Psalm 3 begins, Oh God, how many are my foes! Psalm 4 starts out, Answer me when I call you my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Every psalmist is committed to the idea that their trouble and the anger it evokes must be addressed directly to God. And we can even be pretty blunt about it. <laughs> Psalm 7 models this for us. Verse 6, it says, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God, 
But the Hebrew sense is more like this. Wake up, God. Get over here and help me. <laughs> I mean, we can be blunt and even insistent about it. But we have to take our anger to God. Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? It comes from the living God. Okay? Then take, take, take it to God. Next, the Psalms teach us to hold nothing back. No anger we hold is off limits for our prayer. None of it. So few things elicit more raw anger, more profoundly, than abuse. Um, to be abused, to have someone you love abused. And many scholars believe that Psalm 109 is a prayer of an abused person. So if, if you have suffered abuse at the hands of another, or if someone you love has suffered abuse at the hands of another, read Psalm 109. Specifically verses 9, or excuse me, specifically verses 6 through 19. And see if it doesn't give some voice to the rage that our abuser produces within us. No, anger is out of bounds in prayer. As a young child, my siblings and I were victims of physical abuse at the hands of my biological father. Punishments that got out of hand, way out of hand. My mother divorced him and married a, a good man when I was six, and my life was better from that moment on. But as an adult, married, entering my 30s, working here at this church, I had not yet dealt with the anger that his abuse built up within me, even as a toddler. I just stuffed it inside, and I had no capacity, no vocabulary for expressing it. In fact, I continued to just stuff every angry feeling within my system throughout my life. And then sometimes, with absolutely no warning, I would blow. A counselor suggested that I buy a plastic baseball bat. Mine was yellow. And then use it to vent my anger by hitting my pillow as hard as I could in private while I expressed my anger out loud as loudly as I could. So that's the idea these psalms of anger are getting at. We are to lay out before God the depth of our anger in the most descriptive, most cathartic, most satisfying language available to us. And then we are to leave it with him. Leave it with him. He alone can deal appropriately justly with the causes of our anger. So over half of the Psalms in Israel's prayer book are about trouble, fear, anger. And as you read them, you'll notice that 
most of them, not quite all, but most of them end the way Psalm 4 ends. So here's Psalm 4, verse 7. It says, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. That's pretty cathartic. (laughs) And here's verse 8. Leaving it all in God's hands. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people. So nothing good comes of anger that we keep for ourselves. It may be understandable anger. It may be justifiable anger. But our anger, whether it's acted out or repressed, our anger always works against relationships with others and with God. And we are not wise enough And frankly, we are not good enough to deal properly with our own anger. The Psalms of anger are a gift to us, God's gift to us. Even Psalm 137, the Psalms teach us how to pray our anger, address it to God, leave nothing out, pray it just the way we feel it, and then leave it with God. He will deal with it. He has dealt with it. Through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, God has dealt with our anger and all of its causes. So, prayers of anger. Another reason to pray the Psalms routinely. By ourselves or in community with others, praying silently or out loud, praying the Psalms will keep us in touch with every kind of anger humans can feel. At every level of intensity, we feel them. And they will lead us to give our anger to God and leave it with him. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So let's, let's do this. Let's, let's pray a psalm of anger together. Psalm 13. Uh, In this psalm, the the cause of the psalmist's anger isn't revealed. He is angry at his enemies, (laughs) the ones he feels have caused his, his trouble. And he's angry at God for being silent in it all. So this that makes this a good psalm to speak for our anger today, whatever its cause, whatever its intensity. Before we pray, please just take a moment and think about your anger. Again, whatever its cause, whatever level of intensity you feel it now, think about your anger. And if in all honesty, you can say you're just not angry. Not at, right at the moment anyway. Well then, pray this psalm on behalf of someone that you know is. Heap your anger on verses 1 through 4. Heap it on verses 1 through 4. And then as we pray verses 5 and 6, give the anger to God. It belongs in his hands. Let him deal with it and we can relax along with the psalmist. We've prayed it. We've done our part. So, will you pray with me? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me?
How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemies will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. Hallelujah. And now it's time for us in our rhythm of worship before God to come to the table. Really, what better, what better prelude for coming to the table is an honest reflection of our own anger and its, its devastating impacts unless it is properly dealt with, as we've learned today in the psalm. To this table, we can bring anything and everything. And there we find an answer? No, the answer to all of our wounds all of our pain, our anger, and our hope at the table. Um, So, friends, this is the joyful table of the people of God. Many will come from east, from west, from north, from south to share supper at this table. We come not because we have to, but because we may. We come not to express an, uh, an opinion or to make a statement. We come because in our frailty, we know that the table representing the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is the answer to all of our issues and problems in life. We come to be together in declaring our need for salvation and our joy in the reality of our salvation. Now, I, I don't know quite how we do it here. I imagine, I think, that you were given cups with, right, a cracker and a, yeah. so you might want to get those ready now. If you didn't get one, would you raise your hand and uh, we can have some people bring that to you? Okay. Well, let's continue with, uh, with our communion today. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed to you, that our Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim my death until I come again. We've sung already this morning prayers of confession, but let's just take a moment and quietly, individually, 
prepare your hearts to receive yet again the cup of blessing, the bread of life. Come worthily to this table. Confess. body of Christ, the, the blood of Christ, take and eat, take and drink, and be joyful. Should we pray together? Loving God, you graciously feed us with spiritual food. We who have received these holy mysteries, this bread of life and this cup of eternal salvation, may we who have received this sacrament be strengthened in your service. We who have sung your praises, tell of your glory and truth. We who have seen the greatness of your love, see you face to face in your kingdom. For you have made us your own people by the death and resurrection of your Son, our Lord, and by the life-giving power of your Spirit.